By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. You know, we're like 105 episodes in and we never did that jingle, did we, as you refer to no, it? It sounds like, <laughs> sounds like we don't need it, but <laughs> I don't yeah, know. I, f- I feel like, I mean, I, I apologize to everyone. If you, if you don't like the fact that we don't have a elaborate introduction, I guess you would have gotten used to it anyway. So you have my boring droning to start off with. So apologies for that, for everyone who's stuck with us that long. Yeah. Thank you for the people who've sent the jingles into us. Uh, we yeah, we, we, never got we have gotten a few, yeah, we've got, we have gotten a few submissions, but I feel like we're really low tech. We're just a nuts and bolts type of podcast. We don't do YouTubing. We don't do video. We just, we just vomit golf information on here and that's about it. Right. Yeah. seems to be worth Is that the right so word far. for it. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Especially when it comes to me. Yeah. (laughs) So we were looking for a topic. We were supposed to have a guest today, but unfortunately he had to reschedule and we still wanted to record. So Adam and I were texting and I will see if this is a good idea. I think it is. I'm like, why don't we do an episode on if we had to start over in golf, knowing what we know now, what would we do differently? So that that's today's topic. And I posed the question on x and i got like i got like several hundred responses yeah it's been a popular question i don't know question. if you could keep up with that but there was a lot of a lot of responses a lot of them were the same i'll get into some of them but yeah that's today's topic if we had a hypothetical time machine to go back to our former selves and maybe you the listeners can think about this as well what would we do differently knowing what we know now 
Well, buckle up, John, because I got both my ember mugs today. <laughs> I got my black oh, and boy. my white one. Yeah, there. Oh, geez. Easy. We're still, <laughs> I'm still looking for that sponsorship from them. <laughs> How did you want to do this? Because when, when I was visualizing it, I suppose we could do it both ways. I was thinking if we actually went back in time, what would we do different? You know, when there's no tech, mm-hmm. there's no track man around, there's no, oh, okay. not even the information that we have now. Or what would we do now if we were starting right now? I've kind of oh, yeah. tried to view it from had, both points. That's actually further than I went in my own head. So <laughs> I guess, I mean, why don't we do it? I think I answered it the first way in my head with some of the notes I have. We could, I guess we could mix in both because technically this is, we're all giving advice to current players. So that's, that's always the goal here. So yeah, I think we do a mixture of both, whatever you feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's start then. Well, what's the first thing you would have done differently, John? The thing that came first to me was the memories of me practicing like just, I used to go to the range for a really long time. Like there, there literally wasn't an amount of balls that I couldn't hit. I did hundreds of them. I loved it when I first took up golf as a teenager. And the thing that I think screwed me up again, hindsight's twenty twenty. So, but if I could go back to that kid, I didn't understand the difference between practice and playing. And this is, you know, kind of an expectation management thing. I would get so much false confidence from hitting ball after ball after ball, hundreds of them, and eventually figuring something out. And then I would go on the golf course and hit like two or three not so great shots and absolutely lose my mind. (laughs) So I think that is one like simple piece of knowledge being like, hey, you've got no pressure. You're, You're hitting ball after ball after ball. Eventually, you're going to figure something out again to some type of rhythm, and that that's not what golf is. And as simple as that sounds in retrospect and to the people listening to this, I still have to remind myself of that from time to time. I think I'm better at it. But yeah, I think a lot of golfers struggle with this too, is just like this, the divide between the practice arena and the playing arena. Some people don't think there is one, and that's why they're kind of endlessly disappointed. They practice the wrong way. They play with expectations of a golfer that might be the range golfer, and he's not. You know, I often wonder, like, what would my handicap be if I if I could use my range self? Like, I don't know, plus seven, something like that. I mean, I hit. I feel like I'd be pretty damn good if I had a couple of shots on the course, at, at it, but you don't. So yeah, I think that that's what first came to me is just like me being so angry at myself because I couldn't recreate my range performance. Yeah, that that whole thing about random versus block practice. I was a serial block practicer as a kid, and I definitely would change that. Because as you said, there's such a huge divide between what you do on the on the range and then what you do on the course. And like you said, I've measured it now with my quad where I'll set a target and I know what tour proximity for that is. And then I'll hit a bunch of balls and I'm always inside tour proximity, usually better than number one in the world. And that's not to say that I'm <laughs> that good. It's just to say that block practice gives you a false sense of competency. Like if I can on the range hit it inside what number one in the world does, then you're going to get upset when you're on the course and your first shot goes and misses the green. You're going to be like, well, why? I just hit a bunch of great shots on the range. So yeah, block practice gives you a false sense of competency and just adding more random practice. So 
you know, just picking different targets, picking different clubs, walking out of the bay, doing a full routine, that little tweak is going to give you much more realistic expectations, which would be probably one of my biggest things is expectations. I know you've written a whole book on this, John, but in terms of the biggest thing I would have changed going back is just manage the expectations, understand a little bit more about what pros are actually doing, how good they are or how not good they are um, in certain regards. Obviously, they're the best in the world. I don't want to say that they're not good, but they're not as perfect as, as we often see on TV. And that led to a lot of anger and frustration for me. And that was... If I could go back again, I would just want to enjoy my time more. I'd want to enjoy that development. It was a constant grind. I was constantly angry with myself. I was a club snapper. I'll admit it. I, I even kicked my wheel off my trolley once, which is quite- How many clubs How many clubs do you think you've snapped? What's your oh, number? I know mine. It's, it's probably three to five. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm no surprise. I think, I'm, I think it, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it's four. Right. All before I was 30. Well, Same. All, yeah. mostly before I was 20, I think. Yeah. My last one, I think, was when I was 24 or 25. The one right. where those of you who have read my book know the story where I did it in front of my dad in Florida. Yeah. There was two in my 20s, early 20s, and two in my teen years. Not proud of it, but it happened. Actually, I, t I tell a lie. I snapped one recently, and I'll tell you why. It wasn't even due to, <laughs> to anger. It's just a putter that I've had for... 22 years and the original two ball is it 22 years yeah probably about 22 years old maybe a little older the original odyssey two ball and uh, i've never ever putted well with it and i've been <laughs> but so you've had it for 22 years i know I, well i'm so i'm so uh i'm so resistant to changing it because i know it's me and not the putter but one day i'm just like you know what i've got to get rid of this thing and the only way i can do it is if i break the shaft on it so that's what i did but yeah that wasn't that wasn't an anger snap that was more of a please save me just make me <laughs> make me get a new one because otherwise i'll keep going back to this that's fair i don't that's that, that that's reasonable to me yeah. I tell you what, when you when you're talking about something earlier, do you know how long my warm ups used to be for for a tournament? Take a guess. Probably like two and a half hours would be my guess. Four to five. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not shocked, but that yeah. is yeah, okay. I always used to book an afternoon tea time, one, two o'clock, the latest I could get out, and I would get there at eight or seven in the morning and, and just completely just beat balls, hit putts. And I'd be exhausted. I didn't realize it as a kid that you only have certain a certain amount of concentration. I just thought, oh, the more work I put in, the better I'm going to be. And then I'd get on the course and I'd be mentally exhausted and not make the connection. But that's definitely something I'd change as well. Yeah, I think for sure. I've, uh, I'll put it out there to hold myself accountable, but I've actually started writing another book. And the topic is the every golfer's like competitive guide, something like that. And, you know, that's one of the things I've been thinking about, like what is a lot of people ask questions like, well, how do I show up to the tournament? How far beforehand or a match with my buddies? And I think most people think, you know, longer is better. And as you said, you can exhaust yourself physically and mentally. I think the number for me is somewhere between like 40-ish minutes, maybe 45 for a more important tournament. And then, you know, if it was just a, you know, a regular match or something, just 20, 30 minutes to get my body ready. But yeah, I think even in normal rounds, like if, if you're someone who it's a control thing, I think, like a lot of things in golf 
where you think you can control the outcome by preparing more the day of, and golf doesn't work like that. We've said this before. We've done episodes on it. I think just having the mindset of getting your body prepared to play golf, whether that's some mobility and warm-up routines and hitting some balls, getting the speed of the greens is important for the day. But other than that, you're not I don't think you're stacking chips in your favor if you're trying to find something on the range, something like that. Yeah, longer is not better in my opinion. So yeah, <laughs> that, that is, you took it to the extreme, of course, for that is a massive amount of time. Well, yeah, I was so determined. I just didn't know where to put that determination, you know, and I, I ended up putting it in things like trying to perfect the look of my swing, putting more work in than everybody else when, you know, it would have been better to do more intelligent work and even less work in, t- in the terms of the warmups. So, yeah, I had all this motivation, just didn't, didn't have the intelligence to put it in the right place. Well, that's the crappy part about golf in general is that you can put in so, and everyone listening to this knows this, like you can put in a lot of work and not get better. You know, I'm trying to be humble to other games and and things we can learn in life, but you know, something like music, running, we've talked about this before, like a lot of other things in life are more straightforward and, and the more work you put in, you'll see more proficiency and golf can be true with that for sure. But a lot of times, you know, we think we can control the outcome by putting in more work. And if it's not the right type of work, if it's not relevant, it can make you worse. And that is very frustrating. Like it can drive you absolutely insane and make you want to quit the game. I did a post the other day about Bob. I don't know if you saw it. Bob is a fictional character who hits a shot left one day. And obviously we know it's because that club face is too close to the path and his path is quite neutral. But Bob doesn't know this. And so Bob starts to swing more to the right because that's what people would do instinctively and then develops this whole mess, you know, where his swing goes more right, his low point goes farther back, he starts fatting, thinning it, hooking it even more. And so, yeah, you're, you're right. If you put in a lot of work and you've got incorrect concepts, incorrect understanding of what to change, or you just let your body completely self-organize with poor concepts, you can get yourself into a mess and more practice can actually make you worse. It's Mm. kind of common to see as well. I've seen it quite a lot. So I went through a lot of the responses we got and we got, like I said, hundreds of them. And I'm going to take a wild guess. It was like 50 to 60% of them were the same. And what do you think that answer was for most people if they could go back and and change something or, or do something over again in their golf game? Yeah, be less technical was one of the ones. You know, one of them, yeah. Less down but the rabbit hole. Overwhelmingly, it was I would get lessons earlier. Right. Okay. And, well, and interestingly, I, I think, competing, right? <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's actually quite fair. I think that was one of the things I was, you know, lucky enough when I took an interest in golf. My parents did get me some swing instruction rather quickly, and I think it helped me immensely. And and I I do think. We talk about instruction on the show a lot. You know, you and me kind of, we don't love being technical if golfers are on their own, kind of playing amateur swing doctor. But I think we've both talked about the merits of getting customized swing advice from a professional. Like, I, I think it's a good idea for most players at some point. I've gotten multiple lessons in my teenage years and early 20s, and they all helped me. So, yeah, I think that was interesting to see like it was overwhelmingly the the common response i got on x twitter and instagram was i would get lessons sooner which i thought was interesting and and insightful but yeah lessons are good like they're not a guarantee but they're good it's an interesting one 
That's interesting because I'm thinking so, my brain's going in so many different directions with that one in terms of if I were to go back in time, 2000s, late 90s, the level of instruction wasn't what it is today. Now, yes, if I was starting today, 100% get lessons because almost every instructor out there now understands the ball flight laws. They have ways of yeah, measuring. No, no one's, yeah, it's, no one's guessing as It's much. not a mystery anymore. Whereas when you go back to when I was learning golf, it was pretty much voodoo, as we talk about all the time. It's There were no clear routes to improving other than let's make your swing look this certain way and you know whatever was in vogue at that time maybe it was in hogan's era everybody makes it look like hogan 90s it was more of like the lead better swing or a mac o'grady but and that approach can certainly work you know and the people who do that approach the people who are taking lessons they're usually the practicers they're the, usually the diligent people who are, who are trying to seek every ounce of improvement from all sources so they are going to improve and you and we might mix correlation with causation there but yeah it's interesting i don't know if if i went back in time i don't know which instructors i would trust necessarily it's really bad to say but I think a lot of instructors back like pre-Trackman era were kind of just winging it. And I, <laughs> Guessing. I'm, I'm going to get such hate from that because I'm sure there are, so, there are some good instructors out there, but I just don't feel it, it's anywhere near. There's such a quantum leap in, in instruction to where it is today and the information we have today that it's, it's such night and day that I think, yes, now get instruction, 100%. Go find an instructor. In the old era, older era, 20, 30 years ago. A little more of a crapshoot, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, grip stands posture, definitely, things yeah. like that. But things were very textbook, like everybody would have been given a neutral grip, probably, right? No one, now we understand more about matchups, right? We're okay as instructors if a, if a player has more of a strong grip or weaker grip or has a Jim Furick esque backswing. We're more open to those ideas, I feel now, than we were before. I could just be putting my own personal bias on that. So I do apologize to anyone I'm offending here, instructors who are well, great. Well, it's your careers. personal opinion. It'll be interesting to see if, you know, from this era, Let's say that, yeah, the early from 2000, I don't know when Trackman came out, but it'll be interesting to see like 20 years from now, do handicaps drop significantly? And obviously not every golfer is taking swing instruction. I still think the number is like 10 to 20%, but there's way more accurate info available to everyone now who wants to get better than there was, you know, we play golf and, and certainly way before that. So it will be interesting to see if, handicaps drop or they just kind of like i think it's only been two strokes it hasn't been significant i don't know if that is statistically significant but doesn't seem so i think that there has been research on people who actually take lessons and it does create significant improvement so so looking at golf overall when only maybe what 10 percent of people take lessons yeah. it's not a great way of looking at it but looking at the lesson takers that's the, that's the best way to look at it for sure all right, let's go down our list. Uh, here's another one that popped out on me. <laughs> Hit down on it. So I think Frank Nabilo on our prior episode, you know, we were talking about his journey through the game before and after TrackMan as well. 
And he had a conversation with, I think it was Joe Mayo early on about hitting down on it. And Joe was like, well, take this driver and hit down on it and see what happens. Like, you know, so the idea back then was we were told hit down on the ball to make it go up. And I used to spend like hours like slamming my club into the ground on the range, just trying to hit down on it and getting the false feedback of the mat, watching the ball actually go fine in the air when on the course that wouldn't have worked. But I think that screwed me up quite a bit. I do hit down on it more than ever now. Like my angle of attack went from like negative one to like negative five now. So I do hit down on it more, but I'm doing it properly. I'm not actually like trying to do it. It's just kind of happening. But back then I was like consciously trying to hit down on it. And that I don't think was a great swing intention for me. It kind of screwed me up for a while. Yeah, it even caused injury for me. That's another thing, hitting off mats. I wouldn't have done as much on that, but that's more of a side Yeah, note. same. Yeah, exactly. Well, you couldn't help it because that was, you know, what was available and still available to most players. Like artificial turf, just it is what it is. It's not the best thing, but grass ranges are expensive. Yeah, but combine that with hitting down on it, you know, where you're intentionally trying to hit down. See, the thing is, and this is hard to really understand, but yes, the club head is moving down as it contacts the ball, but the hands are actually moving up. And away from the ball. Yeah. They're moving I remember in you posting directions. a video. Yeah. I remember you, it was one of the earlier videos I saw from you. I think you, it was like a Tiger Woods video and some other people were showing it too. Like the hands are actually going up while the club is going down. And I'm like, whoa, I never even thought of that. Yeah. And you know what? Most people will do that naturally until they get taught out of it. Yeah, that's, <laughs> exactly. And that's then. the thing. That's why, like I, I was saying, instruction in the past, most instructors would tell you in the past, hit down on it. More instructors now understand how the hands and body work, and they'll just create a downward ang- angle of attack through low point pla- uh, placement, you know, getting better low point placement rather than telling someone hit down on it or stay down or keep down. Those are all bad things, in my opinion. So, yeah, I, th- I think this goes into a broader sense of just understanding ball flight laws, understanding why the ball does what it does. And again, going back in time, we didn't have that information. At least it wasn't readily available to regular golfers. The new ball flight laws were in a book from the 60s by Cochrane and Stubbs. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing their name. Cochrane and Stubbs. All right, Stubbs, Stubbs, one of the two. But it's, yeah, it's about from the 60s. And they had the, the correct ball flight laws in there. And somewhere, really? yeah. What was the name of the book? Oh, God. God, I read it in university. I I can't remember, and it's it's there's millions of I'm people. Well, this. maybe not millions, but thousands of people shouting at us right now, going, "It's called this, <laughs> you idiot!" But yeah, they had they had it correct in there. The and search for the perfect that's swing. That's it. That's the one. Yeah, search for the perfect swing. They they had a lot of great stuff in there, but somewhere along the line, it got lost. That information got lost. The PGA got taught the old ball flight laws that were wrong. And then somewhere along the way, we refound the new ball flight laws or the correct ball flight laws, I should say, the the super old ball flight laws. I think TrackMan helped popularize that. A lot of people say TrackMan created the new ball flight laws. They didn't. They just measured them and they used the, the math that is used to determine what's happening is uh, based on you know physics, which is what Cochrane and Stubbs said. Isn't that the thing in golf in general? Like I feel like I'm going to veer a touch off topic for a second, but I've just noticed this over the years. I feel like in golf in general and coaching instruction improvement, you know, the whole thing, people want something like new and like it's never been seen or heard before. 
whether it's like a mental concept, strategic, ball flight laws. And a lot of stuff is like, I mean, like this was physics, like it was there all along and people probably figured it out intuitively. And some people seem to have figured it out scientifically ahead of schedule. But a lot of concepts are there. It's just people figure out different ways to say it. And it sounds different. It's like, well, someone actually said that in the 70s. It's not that new. And I I always find that fascinating in golf because I think there's an expectation that like there has to be something new and truly groundbreaking to make me better. And then someone comes along and says it and you're like, oh, yeah, that is. And then someone else is like, nope, someone figured that out a long time ago. It's like, who cares? Like it, it, if it's a truth in the game and it helps someone like, isn't that what coaching is? Like a bunch of people finding different ways to say the same things, whether that's mental advice. I've only found like a few things where I'm like, like strokes gain, for example, like there's, you know, people who say Mark Brody was not the inventor of that. And I won't go down that rabbit hole, but even he's been challenged. And that was a concept that, you know, when that came out, everyone's like, wow, I never thought of it that way. And people were like, oh yeah, well, someone did, but not in the same way. Anyway, that was a, a bit of an aside there, but just popped into my head about like, I think sometimes people get very territorial over certain pieces of knowledge and they're just truths of the game that people uncover at times. Yeah, I think there's a lot now. If you dive really deep into biomechanics and the physics of golf, there's a lot of cool information coming out about forces and torques and how the body moves and creates certain things. A lot of the old school teachers will say, oh, well, it's just confirming what we already know. And to some extent, it, it is. You know, there's a lot of things within the new information that you could say, oh, yeah, that's why that old drill worked. Or that's why telling someone to swing it swing it easy or stay in rhythm worked, you know, because maybe it changes certain things in how the body reacts that we're just learning about. So I don't dismiss old school instruction at all. In fact, when I listen to old school instruction, I try and think of, well, why does that work? If it did work, why did it work? Is it because of the, the, the thing that they think it's working? Like, for example, you know, yes, telling someone to hit down on it for the most part is probably a, a bad idea. But there are situations where you could tell someone who's on their back foot scooping it up in the air, you could tell them that, oh, no, your club has to hit down on it and they could self-organize or, or move into a better position as a result in it. So I see there's, there's truth. There's what actually happens, which is what I really am after that's what I'm, I want to know but then there's also how can you take that truth and interpret it for different people give people different explanations of that so for example the old ball flight laws if you told someone I saw an article from Butch Harmon talking about shaping it recently and he said start with the club face aimed at aimed where you want it to finish and point your feet where you want the ball to start Now, we know that's not correct in terms of truth of what's happening through impact. However, if you give that to a lot of golfers, they will hit the shape that you want. They're not doing exactly what they think they're doing, but that setup produces the results for them. I think that's, you know, that's what... But Chalmers always good at, right, is getting the results out of players, which is ultimately more important. And to qualify what I said is like, I know certain things that were said were flat out wrong. And it created an intention that didn't work for a lot of players. But sometimes, like, as you said, that still could work for someone. I'd prefer to have start with the right information. Of course, I think you'll have a better chance. But in any event, that is interesting. The book is available on Amazon. You can buy it used. That's interesting. I found it. I've got it here somewhere. 
But yeah, it's incorrect information is not always bad if it gets the job done for you. I just, I prefer to have real truth because, you know, that's going to apply to, to most golfers. But say someone's struggling with drawing the ball, they really want to draw the ball and they're trying to present the face more close. Now we know to hit a draw, you actually have to have the face open to the target. You know, your path just has to be more right to it. But I'm happy if a player is hitting pushes, I'm happy to tell a player, get feel like that club face is closed, feel like it's 20 degrees left. I know it's not when they hit it, but if that produces the draw for them, that's the feel they need. I always try and explain to them that's not what's actually happening, but ultimately getting the job done is important. Mm. We've, we've gone down a rabbit hole here, gone into the weeds, yeah. as Joe Rogan would say. Yeah. Do you want to, what's next on your list? Well, yeah, I, w- I wish I had the information on ball flight laws. I don't feel like the information I had when I was a kid was awful because I still, while I didn't know path and face and what percentages they determined ball flight, I still knew that if the club face is closed to the path, the ball will curve left. And if the club face is open to the path, the ball will curve right. So that's true whether you're looking at old ball flight laws, new ball flight laws, or any of them. That's still just, true. It's just how how open and how closed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I used to take the open thing for – I used to hit a fade and like the, the face was just – it was pointing to the right of the target. So I'd hit these big, big push pushes. Cuts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that was not helpful to me. Yeah. Well, the next thing then would be to actually measure it. So obviously if you go back in time, you can't do that. But – now, anyone can jump on a TrackMan or jump on a GC Quad, rent it out for half an hour. Sometimes some places have them for free and just get your numbers and see what you're actually doing. Now you know what you should be doing. Let's see what you're actually doing. And I think that is definitely, I wouldn't do it all the time. I wouldn't get obsessed with it and need a TrackMan with me 24-7. But getting an occasional check-in once a month, once every couple of weeks or so is a good idea to make sure things aren't going off track. And, you know, it bridges that gap between feel and real as well. Because the first time I went on a TrackMan, I knew that my path was in to out. I could see it by the draw. But I didn't know it was 10 degrees in to out. And when I tried to make it neutral, it felt like I was jamming the club into my left leg. It literally felt like I was chopping across it, at least initially. And so I would never, ever have been able to neutralize my path without the use of a track man because the feel was so alien to me at first that I needed that feedback to check that I w- it was right. Because you know, the first time I hit zero, I was like, is that right? That's what zero feels like? That feels unbelievable to me. And I'm sure it feels different to you today. Yeah, and it does. That's that why evolves. I need to check in. It yeah. evolves over time, yep. yeah. yeah. My natural swing now is very close to zero after all that training. I don't feel like I'm slamming the club into my left leg to achieve that. So yeah, understanding the ball flight laws better understanding how to change them as well you know that's at least from my coaching point of view now it's a very simple game this is what the player needs to change at impact these are the options to be able to do that let's select one of those options it's very simple and i use that same process in my own game as well whereas before i didn't have that process it's just okay let's try this top of the backswing this week and see if this makes me into tiger woods and no it never does (laughs) We are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Gentlemen, fresh ball fall is upon us, and you need to be in the festive spirit. 
light a candle, get some pumpkin spice, and make sure your balls look nice with the sponsors of today's show, Manscaped. Nature may clear the leaves on their trees, but you'll need Manscaped's help to get you ready for that sweater weather. Get your pants puppies prepared for cuffing season with a trim as refreshing as a fall breeze by going to manscaped.com and using code SWEETSPOT for 20% off plus free shipping. You all know what it feels like when you're doing a bit of grooming and you cut yourself. It's not pleasant. The new Lawnmower 4.0 with advanced skin safe technology reduces these nicks and cuts to make raking the leaves a lot less painful. Plus, the Lawnmower is a technical masterpiece. It has a 7,000 RPM motor, multifunction on and off switch that can engage a travel lock, and a built in LED spotlight to help you see parts of your body that you might have not looked at in years. Once you've cleared the driveway, the performance package comes in hot with products to cool you down, like the Crop Preserver Deodorant and Crop Reviver Spray Toner. The Performance Package 4.0 caps it off with two free gifts, the Manscaped Boxer Briefs and the Shed Travel Bag. Bring the fall in right and get 20% off and free shipping with code SWEETSPOT at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com using code SWEETSPOT. As the leaves fall, make sure you have it all with Manscaped. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. So another thing that I gave some thought to this and that popped out to me and it kind of bleeds into like swing tempo and strategy and just like overall like approach to golf like I felt that I had this very like conservative scared approach to the game I feel like again in that era 20 plus years ago everything was like safe off the tee, like take the club back low and slow and like just try and control everything. So like tempo, for example, like was it, I mean, I'm not going to, I think it was Jack Nicholas's book, but there was just a lot of like take the club back, like very controlled and slow. And it made me, I think I just swung the club very scared. Whereas now Compared to the the swing I had back then, not that I have a perfect takeaway, but more of the timing of it, like I'm much more aggressive on the backswing, like getting back to the ball. I'm kind of not holding back as much. I don't look at the course with as much fear. Like I used to look at tee shots and think like, oh, I have to play the safest imaginable club and target possible on this hole because all I see is trouble. So I think if I could go back to, you know, my initial 
stage in the game is like I would just be and, and conservative and aggressive like aren't great words, but that's the best I can come up with. Like I just wouldn't be so scared and conservative about everything. And that's I guess part of my personality is mostly a risk averse person. But I felt like golf pushed me in that direction back then. Everything was just like control, like don't do anything like don't hit your driver if you don't have to, like take the club back very controlled. And I'm like, I think quite the opposite right now. I'm just letting it rip and, and see what, you know, not like in a, not in a irresponsible way, but more of like a, I'm actually going to like commit to this and swing more aggressively to a good target and be more committed versus like, I was just, I don't know. I just looked at everything very conservatively and it didn't, did not help in my opinion. Yeah, in some ways, my strategy was too conservative when it shouldn't have been. And in other other cases, it was too aggressive when it shouldn't have been. So examples of conservative, I would, you know, I remember the first at my course, it was a 250-yard par four that was drivable. I'd always hit like a five or six iron off the tee and wedge it in. (laughs) Now, looking back at it, well, that's dumb. It's kind of like the, what is it, the 10th at Riviera? You know, it's better to hit a driver down there. And knowing what I know now about strokes gained and distance, that would have been the better option, especially as I was so ac- I was accurate with the driver. I wasn't long, but I could I, I wouldn't hit that ball out of bounds and I would get it closer to the green. But, you know, I thought I thought I was being intelligent because that's what you heard on TV. I remember when Tiger won the British Open and hit irons off every tee. And everybody's talking about, oh, look how clever he is. Look how intelligent this player is. Now, yeah, we, which now also we know like, different. Yeah, but also like that that course, like looking back on it, that that actual, those conditions that week were very strange compared to like very dry, lots of, you know, bunkers. bunkers and also, yeah. let's face it, he was hitting his two iron farther than most people were hitting their drivers. So he had... He had a, such a disproportionate swing speed and power advantage that like he could do that and still kill everyone. Whereas now that's the, the competitive advantage wouldn't be there as much because there wouldn't be such a disparity in swing speed. So I actually used to refer to that example back in the other times when I first started writing articles. I was I was all for the conservative tee shot strategy. I'm like, look, Tiger hit irons. And it's like looking back on it, it's like that was probably not the best example because he won most of those majors because he hit his driver really far and kept it in play and then hit tremendous iron shots. Yeah. And as a as a player who, talking about myself now, my own strategy, as a player who is short hitter, but incredibly accurate, that was the complete wrong strategy for me to take four irons off the tee when a driver would have got me in the fairway just as often and farther down there. So yeah, I was much too conservative in those regards, thinking I was intelligent and I clearly wasn't. But we didn't know back then, you know, we just got fed different information. But on the other end, I remember I would take driver and my targets would be very aggressive. You know, I, I remember they'd be out of bounds down the left and I'd be going trying to hit the, the middle of the fairway when there's no danger on the right. Whereas knowing what I know now with the width of shot patterns, I would be aiming it almost at the right rough on certain holes or the left rough, depending on where the danger was. So, yeah, I would, I would definitely play more aggressively in terms of distance but I would play more conservatively in terms of the target side to side that I'd pick. I wouldn't have fired as at pins as much and I wouldn't have gone always down the middle of the fairway if there was danger on one side. Yeah, and I think for what does learning optimal strategy, we've had Fawcett on a few times, Brody, we've both offered advice on this. I think 
if someone wants to know like, well, why would I be a smarter course manager? Why would I learn that type of stuff? And I think looking back on it, like full circle, when you know the right target and the right club, it does give you more and, and more importantly, like what her reasonable outcomes in terms of shot dispersion, like that's given me a lot more freedom on the course to not just, you know, in the past, I would just look everywhere and be like, oh, but there's some trees over there. There's some bunkers over there. I'll be like, don't hit it anywhere on those. So it was just the intention and like the fear I had stepping up to the ball was so counterintuitive to doing what I think is the best thing, which is just, you know, stepping up with as much confidence as possible and just kind of letting it happen in an athletic way. Like that was not possible with me not understanding where to aim and just seeing trouble. Now I would say, in addition to improving my skills, when I can step up to the hole and I can be, you know, some people don't like, you know, there's always an argument against all picking a specific target or an intermediate target. Either way, when I know this is where I'm supposed to aim and I have confidence, like that gives me the best chance of success with some hopefully insurance on both sides, that gives me more freedom to execute and swing quote unquote more aggressively and committed to that target. And that I think is whether you're a PGA tour player or even an intermediate golfer, like that is that empowerment, that confidence can come from understanding all that stuff about strategy, which is why we keep talking about it over and over again, because it it can genuinely help, I think, access your skill more often because I think you'll have more confidence over the ball. That has been a major shift in my game over the last, you know, 10 plus years. Yeah. Good targets. And good expectations, as far as like, <laughs> yeah. explanations came out. Those two things are really key for confidence. I think that, you know, think about the reverse of that. If you're picking a target that is just so small that your brain knows there's a good chance that I'm going to miss this, that's going to lower your confidence. And then if your expectations are, I have to hit this good shot, then that's that again is just going to lead to low confidence. And those are two things that hurt me as a, as a junior. You know, we saw. Only shots in the fairway, right? Great shots on TV. We didn't understand. Pros are only hitting 60% of fairways. You know what? I I understood it intellectually. I don't know why it didn't assimilate into my brain. <laughs> I just don't know. Oh, why. I, I remember as I was going through this exercise in my brain, I remember as like someone who had just taken up golf like a year or two into it, watching obviously Tiger and everyone else on the PGA tour and like showing up to the course with my buddies. And I remember one, one day in particular, like it had rained and we're like, Oh, the course is soft. We're going to be able to pin hunt today. <laughs> so like I'm expecting to like stand over the balls, like a 13 year old who just took up golf and start firing at pins. And, you know, we had, this was before the pro V one. So we were playing the Baladas and the DT one hundreds. And I'm just envisioning like, hitting these shots, sucking back to the pin because the, the greens were moist. And then you go out there and like top the ball and chunk it and like throwing my clubs everywhere. And it's like, again, in retrospect, it's absolutely silly, but there's a lot of people who play golf like that, unfortunately, still, I think, where they just, it's like, there's a disconnect between, you know, what, what good golf looks like for them versus, you know, the not so real version that we see on TV. It's so silly, but it, 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 it's true. It's part of the game that, even talking to some PGA Tour players, like I've spoken to a few that have admitted to me that like, yeah, I'll watch tournaments on TV that I'm playing in and it doesn't put me in a good headspace because I'm seeing like the highlight reel. I'm like, oh boy, you know, I got to go out there and really fire, fire pins today. 
it's a strange thing, but it happens. Yeah, it's in- interesting that even though we hit it better now than we used to, our, our strategies are probably more conservative than they used to be. You know, we used to hit it worse and have a have a more aggressive strategy. Oh, let's fire at that pin, and if I if I miss it by ten yards, I'm absolutely screwed. And there's a good chance I'll miss it by ten yards. And it's no wonder we felt that anxiety over the ball, and that's how most people are playing. If you're picking safer targets, it's like that confidence comes from well, when your ability matches your expectations, or when yeah, when your ability matches. Yeah, I suppose your expectations could be classed as your strategy, right? If you aim at the middle of the green, that's a an expectation thing. You know, you're expecting that you're not going to hit it perfect, and a little either side, as you say, gives you that insurance that you'll still hit the greens. And then understanding the stats as well. You know, if I I did figure this out later in life, but way too late. That okay, if I miss a green, I know it costs me X amount. Uh, this was actually before Brody, or at least before his book, because I use Peltz's stats. And I knew that, oh, wait there, pros are up and downing only 60% of the time. So wait there, if you miss a green, yeah, it's going to cost you almost half a shot. And then I, I knew his, you know, if you're 10 foot away, you hold, what was it, something like 40% of putts. I was like, oh, so if you hit it to 10 feet, you're only gaining that much, that many strokes, 40% of a stroke. So I was like, oh, this doesn't match up here. Maybe a safer strategy is better. I love what Brody did with that math but yeah I figured that stuff out way too late unfortunately you used to think that a short chip might be better and easier than a long putt which is not the case well yeah I think it's hard for people to think in fractional strokes because ultimately like that is long-term thinking because usually we think like in more like one two strokes because it's you know hole by hole and and good strategy is stacking the odds in your favor over the long run. And that means fractional strokes. You don't see them necessarily in every hole and every round, but they add up over time. And that's goes with a lot of things in life, investing, <laughs> learning anything. So it's hard to see the little things add up because in the short term, it doesn't work that way. It's more unpredictable and erratic. And we tend to make poor decisions with short-term information and you absolutely can do that in golf when you're like missing greens you're like well that wasn't the right strategy because i missed over there and it's like well it still might have been the right call but you are going to miss some of them a certain amount just because that's golf (laughs) so what's next on your list well in terms of we talked about restriction in terms of strategy you know hitting four irons off the tee and i've put a big uh capitalized word restriction because that kind of sums up a lot of my mistakes restricting my swing in many regards, restricting the strategy. So, you know, in terms of restricting the swing, I bought into the idea of X factor, which is, you know, if you restricted your hip turn in the backswing and you created a bigger separation between your upper and lower body, you could hit it farther. And me being a kid, very, very determined, I thought, well, more is better, right? So I didn't move my hips at all. I went through about a year where I literally tried to lock my hips in place as if my lower body was in cement and turn my shoulders 90 degrees. And being very flexible, I did it. Luckily, I didn't. That sounds painful. (laughs) Yeah, well, I remember my my teacher, John Peters, he warned me against it. He said, "I, I don't agree with that. I can't remember his specific words, but I remember going to him for a lesson one day and I was like, oh, my back is really sore. It was musculature, luckily, nothing long-term and I haven't had any bad effects from it. But 
the bad effects were it restricted my distance. It did the complete opposite of what I thought. And me being the personality that I am, I just thought, oh, well, if I just keep at this for a year, the distance will come. And it didn't. And now I, I still struggle with it to this, this day. I still have to kind of let my hips move or, or focus consciously on letting my hips move. So I did things like restricting the turn towels under the arms as well. So restricting arm lift and arm movement, trying to make a shorter swing. I used to have a very long swing and I'm trying to make it very short, keeping my left foot planted instead of allowing it to float like Nicholas did. And all those things killed my distance. And that's why my biggest weakness to this day is I just pat it out there. I don't get any distance. And so all <laughs> it was, it was my seek, my, my search for improvement and betterment that actually cost me, which is the, uh, the irony. If I had let myself do things naturally, I probably would be better today because I wouldn't have had those restrictions in place. It's never too late. Well, yeah, I, I can always, and I have worked on, you know, lifting my left foot and I picked up some distance, but it has to be conscious now because I've got 10, 20 years of ingraining of, of keeping all those restrictions in place. So I have to consciously go and pick each one and work on them. And I just don't have the time to do that anymore. So yeah, it's just kind of sucks, but <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, that was another thing on my list is, you know, knowing what we know now about what's more efficient. I have fitness strength and speed training in my notes here. And I have lifted weights on and off since I was a teenager. And for a long time, I, I stayed away from them because I was scared what it would do to my golf swing. And I just totally regret that. I, I wish I would have, you know, if I could go back in time and start over again, then yeah, I would, I would try and get after it more, do the speed training and, and sticking to the habit of three full body weightlifting routine, which is what I've been doing the last couple of years. It's just feel more control in my body. It helps prevent injury. We've had Mike Carroll on the show. We've had co-founder of TPI on the show. So you can go back to those episodes, but yeah, I'm a big believer just because I, I think doing those things is good for life in general and health and longevity and quality of life. But yeah, I would, I would absolutely be more focused on strength and speed training and the mobility stuff earlier, you know, not when I was 12, but you know, they, they found out lifting weights isn't, you know, we used to be like, oh, you can't lift weights too early. It'll stunt your growth. And like, that's not true either. Lifting weights is a good thing when, if you're a teenager or in your twenties. So yeah, I would absolutely have viewed swing speed as a skill, not as an afterthought of just, I have it or don't. I would have trained for it appropriately. I would have gotten my body more prepared to play more golf and be in more control of my body for my swing and distance. So that's one thing that I would definitely change. Just, yeah, I think it, it's just a very, it's just a great thing. <laughs> yeah, same for me. I mean, I still need to do it. I still need to do speed training. I'm always, I'm going to get around to it. Never done it, but I need to at least once in my life dedicate a year to speed training just to see what I can do with my own body. Yeah, I think if you just got after it, you could undo a lot of the things that you're saying. Like I, I really do. I'd be shocked if you were like, I'm going to take a year with like the stack or super speed, whatever, and do it two or three times a week. Like I would be shocked if you don't get to like 110. Part of it is fear. I'll tell you why is because I did have the motivation to improve speed as a kid. 
And the way that I did it was I started weight training. I kind of didn't know what I was doing at first, but I started eating correctly. I learned about protein and calories. So I started shoveling down calories, shoveling down protein. And I went from, oh, I got to convert it from stones and pounds in Britain. I was like seven stone <laughs> 10. I think it's about 110 pounds to now I'm 170 Right, so I gained 60 pounds, and not all of that was muscle, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that'd be impossible. <laughs> yeah, but I'd, I'd like to think at least a third of that to a half, half of that was muscle over the course of well, the year. that's years. a major, but that's like a major body change, right? Yeah, like, it is. That's, that's, that's a significant change. But John, do you know how much speed I gained? Two miles an hour. Yeah, maybe one or two mile an hour, yeah, because I, I didn't focus on speed. Yeah, based on you know, some of the episodes you've done with Mike Carroll and TPI, it's that Sometimes for some players, it's not a strength deficit. Sometimes it's an explosiveness deficit. So, you know, that's what they've they've looked at. Like some players, yes, need to get stronger, perhaps in their lower body, their trunk or upper body. Some players do need more of the explosiveness speed training. Like, for example, like I think I'm tapped out. Like if I keep doing like over speed training, like I I think I'm getting close to being as efficient as possible. And I just keep trying getting stronger. And that seems to help. So the, the answer is not the same for everyone. So, but it'd be interesting to see, like, if you did three months of it, like, I'd be shocked if you didn't get some quick gains. Oh, my comments weren't, they weren't anti, yeah, uh, yeah. they weren't yeah. anti-fitness. I would just say that I would have added speed training. I put so much focus and effort on yeah. building, building mass, building muscle, muscle strength and muscle size that I didn't put the focus on Yeah, no one, speed no training. one even thought about it. Even just yeah. the intent of, you know, you don't have to do the overspeed training necessarily. Like just taking, if you're hitting your driver, if you're hitting like 20, 30 balls with your driver a few times a week, taking 10 or 20% of that and just going at it as hard as you yep. possibly can. Like that is absolutely can increase your swing speed for sure. Yeah, but John- we were told we were told swing it exactly, easy. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> That's the exactly. problem. Exactly. That 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 went against everything like, you know, control everything, be safe, like don't hurt yourself, like you lift weights or you do that, you're going to pull a back muscle and like I actually think it's the opposite. I think you are more prone to injury if you don't do those things and challenge your body more. Even myths like, "Oh, I hit it farther." You'll hit it farther if you swing easy. You know, those are prevalent when I was learning golf and so you you believe them. And you don't know because you don't understand the physics of it. We didn't have launch monitors to measure stuff. And so, like I said, all this restriction, just ultimately, if I could go back and change all that, I would. I would love to. That's why I see, like, it's so funny because I'll play with a lot of college kids in tournaments. And a lot of them aren't physically imposing. Like, they're the same kids that were playing 30 years ago, whatever, like their bodies haven't magically changed. They're like, but they're swinging like so hard because again, they, the intention is totally different. Like they're not scared of it. They're embracing it. And there are kids who probably never even lifted a weight who are just getting to 110, 120 because like they're doing it younger and the intention's there. And we were told the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So Speed, distance would have put much more focus on that. Yeah. Just like your short game. Like you want to get good with your wedges. You also want to like learn how to hit a little bit farther and be faster. Like it's, it's an advantage. It's a scoring advantage for sure. Exactly. Yeah. 
On the topic of questions that we or answered answers that we had on Twitter X, we mentioned a lot of people mentioned I would have had lessons, and we've kind of discussed that where the positives and the benefits of that. Definitely more benefits nowadays. One of the things that I really really hurt me was trying to be too textbook. I and and lots of people said I went down the rabbit hole of technique as well, and I think that if you go down rabbit holes that are incorrect then yes, it's going to make you worse. I think the instruction now is better. That doesn't mean that more quality information is better for you. You can still have an overload of good information as well. So, But at least now the information is better. So I've got a feeling that will become less of an answer in the future that people went down technical routes and got worse, hopefully. Because I think now there's more relevance. It's like, okay, if you change this, it's to do this. Like, okay, you want to move your ground contact forwards? This is how you do it. These are the options. So they're, they're more relevant to the impact factors. I think a lot more instructors are impact focused now. They, they understand that's the goal. We've got to influence impact if we want to influence the outcome. It's not true in all cases, but that's certainly how I try and coach and all my programs are dedicated towards that. Here's your problem. Here's your solutions rather than old school instruction being, right, let's try and make your swing more textbook looking. And hopefully that's going to make you better. Yeah, it was more aesthetic based versus, you know, salute because we didn't know technically what the solution was in a lot of instances. Yeah, And obviously that can help some people, but it can also hurt. And I think it both helped and hurt me. You know, it helped me because it gave me something to focus on, something to practice, probably made my swing more generally good, but at, at some point it started to detract from my improvement. For example, I became so textbook obsessed that I felt like I needed absolute perfect alignment to play good golf. I, fe- I felt like I needed that club face to be absolutely square. I used to buy lasers and things and attach them to the club face, which is, is silly for a few reasons. But you know, now, for example, say I'm out there and I'm hitting it left, I'll just open the face at a dress and grip it and play good golf. Whereas when I was a kid and I was textbook obsessed, that would be heresy. That would be lunacy to open the face at a dress. How could you possibly do that? That's against the textbook. That's a, a band-aid. That's going to ruin my golf for the future. Well, I can tell you folks, it doesn't ruin your golf for the future. Having the ability to be adaptable and the ability to just change and make little tweaks to your swing and little tweaks to your setup even to achieve an outcome you want is absolutely fine and should be encouraged. Now, I'm not talking about huge things. You know, I'm not talking about setting up with a face 90 degrees closed at a dress but little tweaks here and there another example online takeaway if you look at my swing i take the club away outside the line and that helps me create a neutral club path in fact if i take it away the better my takeaway looks the worse i hit it the worse i play golf so i know there's training aids out there at the moment promoting perfect takeaways and they it's <laughs> I, well, yeah. be, it would do the same thing to me it'd probably destroy me yeah exactly so my desire it was, it was only when i got to about 25 that i said you know what screw this i'm taking it outside the line and that just unlocked a new level of golf for me because i didn't care about how my swing looked then so yeah, now I'd say I'm much more dynamic. I'm open to change. I'm open to things not certain things not looking as textbook. 
Uh, I think more, certainly more instructors are going that way, especially the better ones with more education uh, are going that way. There's still a lot of old school instructors who want you to look absolutely textbook in certain positions for reasons unknown to me. So yeah, I, w- I would have focused less on swing as well as a kid and more on things like strike and impact variables. I was the kid who would be recording Tiger Woods's performances and then freeze framing his swing, going through it frame by frame by frame, drawing lines on my TV with dry erase marker pen and then getting into the mirror and trying to copy them, hoping that that was the position that's going to turn me into Tiger Woods and it never was. In fact, I injured myself a few times trying to put myself into his positions. I made a micro tear on my, um, what do they call it, rotor cuff, trying to get my elbow to stop flying like his was. So yeah, huh. so many. Uh, it's it's so sad, really, when you think about it. Right, that you have this kid who is desires to be so good, and they they're seeking. They think they're doing it in the most intelligent way. They're putting the effort into. I'm talking about me now. Putting the effort into. <laughs> I'm going to hit four iron off the tee because that's the clever play. I'm going to restrict my swing so I can hit it dead laser straight all the time. I'm not going to focus on speed because I'm going to swing it easy. I'm going to make my swing look textbook. And all these things hurt me, John. It's so sad that if I, I think just... you were like trying. I think a lot of it's kind of a reoccurring theme here is like a, a lot of stuff wanted you to stay inside the box, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Like there was a there was a a lot of group think. And it was like, let's stay inside this box and control everything. And, and I think we found now that like a lot of outside the box stuff, there's a lot of strange looking swings on the pro tours. How does this work? Like how does Scotty Scheffler, the best ball striker, like generationally with his feet flying all over the place, like the guy's like literally tap dancing on the tee box and hitting approach shots. Eddie's had one of the best ball striking seasons in the history of the game. Like, can you imagine if he showed up in like the nineties like that? Like people would have like fallen over. It's interesting. We had it. We had Furick. No, no. Uh, but, I know like era. back, but yeah, there was outliers, but it was like, no one could understand why it worked. And yeah. they were just like, oh, he does that. You stay over there. Everyone else come over here. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, you before Tiger, you had David Duval who hit a fade with a super closed club face. Like his club face at the top was pointing at the sky, facing the sky. And I didn't understand that as a kid. I'm like, how on earth can you hit a fade from there? I thought a closed face produces a, a hook. It's, none of it made sense to me and no one explained it. No one wanted to explain it. But yeah, there's just, there were so many myths. And like you said, every, everybody had to be put into a box. And, you know, that's going to help. Well, it's like how you make sense of things with the information you have available. Yeah. That's just like a human being thing. I'm not saying I would have rejected technical work i still don't uh but for me the swing would have been just get a basic idea of a general motion you know what does a decent looking setup look like what's a decent looking top of the swing what's a decent looking end position those type of things if you get those three endpoints start middle and end the in between is going to be pretty good and then you can start from there to focus more on things like strike quality what's your path doing the big three that we talk about they're actually relevant to performance just looking through my list here we actually had a an interesting suggestion from Mike Carroll from Fit for Golf. I've mentioned a couple of times on this episode. One of his things he said is that he would play off the front tees more often to learn to score better. 
And I think this concept in general would be, I know not, I, Mike hits it incredibly far. So not everyone, like there's people listening to this who have to play from the front tees and they can't go any closer. But I think it also speaks to like the level of challenge you give yourself in this game. So when I took up golf, I played like a local park course that was very short. And I actually think that was something that was just good. Like that was just good luck because I took up the game in a way that wasn't too hard for me. If I had played a like 18 hole normal course that was, you know, too big of a challenge for me, like too quickly, I think that would have diminished my enjoyment of the game. But I think just the general idea of, you know, a lot of golfers try and make the game harder for themselves and they want to excel under harder conditions. Like what about going the opposite direction and like make it way too easy for yourself so you can build up some confidence and then take that to bigger challenges. Like, I think that's just the general concept that is helpful in a number of ways, whether it's practice, tees you play off of, opponents, whatever. There's an appropriate level of challenge you have to give yourself. And if you go too hard, then it's like debilitating. But sometimes if you do make it, like this game is so hard that like I think sometimes making it very easy for yourself sometimes could give you at least some like positive energy being like, you know, I I think Bryson DeChambeau did this recently. He was playing from like, I think he shot a 58 on the live tour. And I know there's a lot of debate over how good the round was, whatever he shot a 58. One of the quotes afterwards. Yeah, it was good. But one of the quotes he said afterwards, like he'd been playing a lot of courses at like 5,000 yards lately, 5,500 yards, just to like, for him feeling, well, let me get to 15 under par, which sounds a bit ridiculous, but like, I actually think that's a cool slash, a worthwhile endeavor for a lot of players at their level is have some reps where you like, I'm thinking like my son playing on, he loves Madden, the the NFL game, the, the video game. He's playing on the like, rookie level and like destroying other teams. Then he plays me and I destroy him. And I'm like, <laughs> that's good. You develop some confidence. Like let's, let's go somewhere in between. So it's like, you know, giving yourself different challenges, I, th- I think can can be a very worthwhile endeavor. I've started doing that more this year. I've, I'm two extremes right now. If I'm playing golf, I'm either, if the course is long, super long, I actually want to play it off the backs and I want to give myself the biggest challenge. Like so, some of the courses out here can be 7'3", 7,500 yards. And I'm like, oh, I, I like the challenge of that, especially as a shorter hitter. Whereas I'm going out later with my buddies and I'm like, ah, you know what, let's play off the whites today. Let's play off 6'3". And let's see if we can yeah. shoot shoot low. And I'm really enjoying it. You know, I don't look at a three, four, five under par round as anything crazy, but it still gives you that little boost. It's like, ah, oh, you know what? That was, that was pretty cool today. It's pretty fun to get a few birdies. So yeah, I like bouncing around between those two extremes right now. Well, it's just different mental barriers. Like we know that, yes, a shorter course is easier to score on, but still we think in relative to par, we think about pars and bogeys like those are absolute things that we have in our mind just because that's the way the game is played. So, yeah, if you give yourself some of those wins, like the course, my home course is not it's like a very neutral course. It's 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 short, technically short, but it's very windy. We have tough green complexes. So sometimes it plays easy if it's not blowing and sometimes it plays pretty hard if it is blowing. So it kind of gives me that mixture of like, well, I can go really low or I can just kind of fight in the wind. But yeah, I think that is learning to break through mental barriers is really important. Like part of scoring and lowering your handicap is being comfortable in spots relative to par that you're going to be thinking about. Like, you know, your milestones of breaking 80, 90, 100. 
you know, you want to break a hundred, do it on the easiest course you can think of. Just so you feel that. It's like, you know, a bit of training wheels. Yeah, lots of times you breaking into a new ground, you know, breaking 80, breaking 90, whatever it is for you, it's more mental. You know, lots of people have the ability and the skill, but when they get there, they feel uncomfortable. And I know for as a junior, that was the case for me. My my course was very scorable, very short, and I'd often come into the last three holes under par and then blow up on the last three holes, which were relatively easy holes as well. And that had nothing to do with my ability. It was more my mentality. It was more that, oh my God, I'm under par here. I'm actually going to produce a score under par, and then I would blow up. usually trying to play too conservatively but yeah i wish i had done that more played off the front tees got a few rounds crazy under par because it is true the more times you do it the more comfortable you feel like that like if i'm if i'm three under par now my mentality isn't oh i've got to get in the clubhouse let's protect this score which is what it used to be my mentality now when I'm three under is, oh, let's get the five, let's get the six, because I've been there before. So it's a completely different mentality. And my, my ability to hit the ball is the same, but my ability to go low, lower score-wise now has improved because of my comfort with it. Yeah, and I know there's some people listening to this sort of thing, like, well, I'm already at the front tees. I can't go any closer. I'm sure there might be an easier course out there. there. There's ways to do this at different levels. I can't remember the name of the book, but going to your point about like it being mental, it was a, a book I read probably a decade ago about like endurance running and just these like crazy studies and experiments about how humans broke through like to different levels of times and distance running that they never thought possible and it was purely like me- like once the mental barrier was broken like their body started doing something like their oxygen consumption all of the physical things that they thought they had to train they realized like maybe it was just your mind holding you back and just like this the, the human brain can be unlocked to do different things and i i've absolutely seen this with the story you tell yourself when you're coming down the stretch if you're uncomfortable not shooting a score if you've never been there before, like you've got to crash and burn a few times and that sucks, but it's part of it to the point where it's like, all right, I've seen this before. I've, I've felt this before. It doesn't feel that different. And you can build that experience with different levels of challenge because our brains are trained to think relative to like what we think we're capable of. And you need to adjust that through experience. It's very hard to do. There are two exercises that you can do. One of is a, is a mental exercise where you go through and you just picture a time where you birdied each hole. So you go through your home course and you say, right, that was the time I birdied the first, the second. And you'll probably find that you've birdied every hole on your on your course at some point. So you know you've got the ability to do that. It's just obviously stringing that stuff together. The other one is actually going out and if the course is quiet, playing a game of uh, scramble with yourself. So hitting two balls, hit two shots, pick your best one, repeat until you're in the hole. So it is you actually hitting the shots. You're just picking the best version of yourself, which you know says a lot about improvement in terms of do we need to hit it better or do we need to access our best golf more often yeah the second the second golfer is always incredible like when you hit get to hit that second shot like it's it's amazing that's why it is a obviously this is a game of skill and it's very physical but it also is like disproportionately mental and it's usually ourselves that are holding our, our our minds that are holding us back yeah well i mean it's us hitting the shots isn't it in that second second golfer scenario yeah, same golfer right? yeah. yeah you just had another chance where you're kind of like oh 
and you just like kind of let go. We should do a whole episode on the factors that go into accessing our best golf. So when you hit that bad shot and you hit that good shot, what's going on differently? And then usually it's not so much of a major swing change that's happened. It's more of a you've accessed something within you, motor learning-wise yep. or motor motor program-wise that is created that for you. And there are ways if, of if, accessing if, that more often. If you could find a way to hypnotize people and then play around the golf thinking every shot was a mulligan, I mean, can you imagine how like <laughs> deep people would go? It'd be incredible. There's our next pro- project, hypno golf. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It'd be multi-zillionaires. Yeah. Try to look through some of the other. <laughs> we did get one response that I thought was funny. I'll put it up there. It, it speaks to like kind of opening your ears up to too many voices. One guy wrote back, he says, I wouldn't listen to my dad. Great man, I love him to death, but he had no business giving me golf advice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is true. And that's like, it is kind of like part of the game, the camaraderie of the game is that like, everyone's open to suggestions and everyone's happy to give them. And, you know, there's just like, I always call it a bad game of telephone that's going on. We've covered this before for sure, but I think, you know, if I had to go back and, and do things over again, like I wouldn't listen my ears wouldn't be as as open as they as they were it's interesting there's there's different problems right now i mean when i was learning it was a lack of information like i couldn't just contact a top professional a top teacher and ask them a question whereas now with social media you always can you always you always had that guy on the range who was ready to give you tips yeah exactly well now (laughs) that guy was always there yeah now now the problem is there's too much information. Like I said, even though it's good information, it's now a case of you've got to have good filters for the information because you can just jump on YouTube, type something, fix my slice, and you've got a 100 different answers for that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying you just have to have better better filters and not go out and try everything there. But I don't know. I don't know what I would have done with YouTube as a kid. I would probably would have self Oh God, you would have like, yeah. I know you would have <laughs> like, yeah, your brain would have like literally melted. I think so. Yeah. One of the things I've got here is differential practice. So going back to my love for textbook, you know, is that, would that be class as type? I've never really, type A personality is just a, a someone who wants to do things the right way. Is that right? Or... I don't, really I don't even know. It. It, sometimes I wonder if it's even like true anymore. Yeah, <laughs> Who knows? Like, I, is that something? Yeah, is that something we were told? You know, twenty years ago, that's not true anymore. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but I know that you know. Thinking back to when I first say I would say I would go on the first hole and snap hook it left, I knew I was screwed for the rest of the day. Whereas now I'm not. If I snap hook a shot, I can fix it. And I can, I've got a good confidence that I can fix it in the right amount as well. I'm not going to turn that snap hook into a push slice. I'm going to slowly, gradually correct it towards neutral. And that ability is born out of obviously understanding what I need to change and knowing how to do it, but also the practice, differential practice. So differential practice for those listening is practicing things in the wrong way. So say, for example, trying to hit the toe or the heel or trying to hit the ball more left or right. And when you practice in that way, you improve your ability to make these minor adjustments or major adjustments in some cases. So, you know, I remember as a kid, I went through about, it was like a three-month patch. I, I wanted to quit the game because I was hitting everything off the toe and I just could not shift it. 
And I, it never, never occurred to me to go on the range and try and shank anything. But, you know, that's what I would do now. I'd go on the range and try and do the complete opposite for maybe it'd take five minutes, 10 minutes, maybe it'd take a week. But I know that would work because I know it has worked. But yeah, adding more differential practice as a kid. But I didn't want to do that because I wanted to do things the right way. Again, me trying to box stay myself. the box. Yeah, me trying yeah, to box myself into box. perfection hurt me more than it helped me. So I would see practice more as play now. It wouldn't be all of my practice, but it would certainly be a reasonably significant portion, maybe 20% of it. I'd be hitting hooks, high right shots, flop shots, low shots, high shots, toes, heels, intentionally hitting it higher on the face, lower on the face, things like that. Because I know now that I've practiced those things, I know those are so, so key to what I can do now. I can play better golf now with less practice as a result of those skills that I've developed. So yeah, less block practice, more random and more differential practice. It's funny. I was on the course recently. I wrote about this on social media in one of my newsletters. A friend of mine, someone I'd met recently, call him an online friend. I have so many online friends now. It's unbelievable. Technically, you're an online friend, Adam. We've yeah, never met in person. That, yeah. Isn't that scary? Keep dodging me. <laughs> just hiding in my basement from you. So I'd never seen my buddy play golf. He came out to my course. We didn't have much time, but we were just, and he, he, to be quite honest with you, he's not too familiar with my work. He's never listened to this show. And we were on the range. We're just hitting balls and I'm seeing him hit a lot of like high, weak, right shots, you know, right going right, adding tons of loft, like classic kind of like slice behavior with his irons. And I'm just like looking at him and again, everyone knows I'm not a swing instructor, but I see like a lower body that's stalling out, arms taking over and like going backwards, all that stuff. And I just asked him, I'm like, can you just humor me for a second? Can you try and hit the ball over there? And I'm pointing to the trees, like to the left and just like try, like maybe round out your swing and hit a hook. And eventually he kind of figured that out. He hit a few, some like horrible pulls. And I'm like, okay, now you know what a closed club face feels like. And I kind of showed him with the T, like, you know, the exercise, you know, you put this on social media before you take the magnet on the club face and you show, I put a T on a club face. I'm like, this is what your club face looks like right now. It is pointing to the right and very high. And I'd love for you to point it to the left and a bit lower so you can de-loft and close it at the same time. So we hit a few shots like that. We went out on the course for five holes. I'm not kidding you. This guy hit, <laughs> my buddy hit like, Four amazing tee shots and approach shots, like tight draws and tight fades, made four easy pars on difficult holes. And he like his mind was blown. He was like having so much fun. And it was he was just like, wow. And that doesn't mean he's fixed forever, but it's just another important reminder that like he was going to try and solve that problem by doing the same thing over and over and over again and keep hitting that high right ball flight. And when I just had him explore the opposite, he's like, oh. So now he's at least got a better chance because he's armed with some better information and uh, the fight's not over, obviously. But you could see the look of joy in his face when he hit these tight little draws, hit a couple of greens, made a few easy pars. It was exciting for him. And I think that's, you know, again, it, with all the information we have, it's still an interesting way to look at things that is still fairly outside of the box. Yeah, and I've got the opposite. The guy I'm going to play with after this, he's not a pupil, he's just a friend. 
It's one of those, you know, you can't teach your parents. Well, yeah, you can't teach your, fr- your friends either sometimes. But yeah, usually I've I wouldn't trying. do that, right? Yeah, yeah. I've stopped yeah. trying. I, I usually don't want to do that. <laughs> I make I make the joke with him every time I see him. I say, "What's what's the secret today?" And he'll get he'll tell me something he's watched <laughs> on YouTube. I'm like, "Ah, oh, right." But he, you know, he I'll watch him on the course and he'll suffer with the same shot over and over. It'll just be a flare out to the left over and over. He's a left-hander, so flare out to the left over and over and over. It might be six, seven, eight, nine holes before he even notices the pattern and tries to change it. And then when he tries to change it, he can't do it in the right amount. He either underdoes it and still flares it out to the left or overdoes it and hits a snap hook right. And again, differential practice, he won't do it. He wants to do things the right way, you know, in the air quotes, you know, just block practice. And he does. Every time he's on the range, he's like, oh, I'm hitting it so well today. Hitting it so well. I said, I found it. I found it every single time. And then we get on the course and it's back to square one again. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you need to do more differential practice. You need to do more random practice. But I've been there. I understand him. So anybody listening to this, I'm sure probably 80, 90% of people listening to this have had those days where they're hitting it well on the range and can't do it on the course and then can't change it on the course. Well, you need to do more random practice and you need to do more differential practice. So you have those skills available to you. Heresy. Mm, I know. <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, I think actually I'm, uh, I said everything I wanted to say mm-hmm. as usual. And this is the part of the episode where I say, Adam, do you have more that you want to say? Um, do you have like three hours more of notes? I'm pretty done with it. Like I said, I, I if I could go back, Focus more on strike. You know, I hate to sell the strike plan to everybody. AdamYoung.com forward slash the strike plan. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, I mean, Tiger's said it, right? He's, he's given Charlie, his son, blades so he can feel the difference between a good and poor strike. I've seen him talk about how he just focuses on strike. I'm sure he's had plenty of focuses in his career, but strike is a very big focus for Tiger as evidenced by his uh, his iron that's famous on if you google his iron you see the rust mark on the middle of the it the dime size rust mark yeah so i would have put more stri- more focus on strike quality i as a kid oh my god i was so swing oriented if you ask me what my th- focuses were as a kid everything was movement left arm this turn shoulder that oh it was hell it was hell my friend steve yellen calls it swing jail and it is Oh, when you're trapped in all those internal focuses, it's absolute hell. And now I'm much more external. It's more natural, more striker-oriented, so much more freeing. That's why we promote these messages. My back garden practice, I used to get my dad's video camera and look at my swing constantly. I would have done less of that and done more work with a foam ball and some spray on the face. But we didn't even know about that drill back then. So I would have found a different way of measuring strike. But yeah, I would have done a lot more strike work. A big one for me was club fit, we haven't mentioned. Just getting my clubs three degrees flatter. Dude, I'm because I'm 5'8", and I use off-the-rack clubs. Every That club is pointing so far left that I would struggle with. I was snap-hooking everything all the time. So my answer to that was early extension and trying to open leading edge. So I was basically hitting a flop shot. A, clo- a, clo- a flop shot with my full shots for years. 
It was only when I actually got my clubs flattened three degrees and now they actually fit flush to the floor through impact that I could actually square the face back up the leading edge and actually get some compression. I picked up like one or two clubs distance instantly, greatly reduced the snap hook left. And it was like a different game for me, just getting that the club fit, the lie angle. So yeah, getting clubs fit, huge. It's funny, I got, I needed flatter irons when I was so shallow and from the inside and Woody Lashin, who many of you know, and you can go back to all of our episodes with him to learn about club fitting. I'm like very toe down now. Yeah, I'm, I'm too. That's how i have like straight. Yeah, I, I haven't even looked at it, but I'm like, I have straightened out my ball flight and I actually hadn't even been thinking about it. I could see it in the divots. I hadn't been giving it much thought. But when I was actually at the US Mid-Am with Will Noth, who is, understands literally everything about deep plane and brilliant kid, I was like, yeah, I'm still three, four into out, but I seem to hit it straight. And he's like, yeah, you're, you're so toe down now. I'm like, yeah, that's probably it. That, that seems, sounds quite reasonable. <laughs> I just hadn't thought about it. I'm like, I'm hitting these straight shots and like, you could see it in my divots, like the, the toes going down. It, it's working. Like, I'm not going to change anything. I'm not going to, I'm playing great with my irons, but it's interesting, like how over the years, like your tendencies can change. And sometimes you do require an equipment adjustment. And if the, the ball don't lie, so if it's going where you want it, then great, go with it. But I, I, with lie angle, when I was hitting those sweeping hooks, going more flatter, straighten the ball out for me for a while, for sure. So yeah, club fitting, I kind of saw it as voodoo science for a while. And and, and luckily Woody Lashin and the other great, great guys at Pete's Golf showed me the light. So it's been awesome learning from him and, and definitely we need to have Woody back on the show. We need to find another topic with him. With the podcast that we filmed yesterday with Frank Nobolo, he was talking about how Tiger was learning about the correct flight, you know, high launch, low spin. And again, when I was learning golf, we didn't have that information available. We certainly couldn't measure it, but now we can. So Tiger was hoarding it. He was hoarding it. Uh, yeah. No one else had it. Yeah, exactly. So now knowing, we know the optimal, right? We know if you launch it 18 with 2000 spin, for most people, that's going to produce the maximum carry. So once I knew that and I could measure it, I got there in, I mean, straight away pretty much. So once I got on a and track, and realizing man, that hitting and also like hitting up on it was adding loft and doing that, like it's, you know, we were again hit down on it. So everyone was doing that with their driver and hitting those low spinners. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the more I knew, okay, hit up on it five to 10 degrees to maximize distance. This isn't for everybody. Hit up five to 10 degrees, get that ball to launch 18 degrees with 2000 spin. If you hit it higher on the face, you're going to benefit from gear effect. All of these things, we didn't have this knowledge back then now we do so simple i, yeah, I so picked up so much yardage <laughs> i picked up so much yardage now i'm not long but i'm i'm at least 30 yards longer than when i was a, a kid swinging the same speed and so if i just known that i mean what's 30 yards in terms of strokes gained right this is two strokes gained i'd be able to at least be the back of the pack with the players i was competing against because when i was competing against them i was hitting four irons in when they were go flicking a sand wedge in so that that actually that determined my path in golf. It caused me to quit for a while once I realized I'm never going to be able to compete against these guys. That was so deflating for me. It wasn't through lack of trying. You know, like I said, I gained the weight and my swing speed didn't budge. I didn't know what else to do. If I'd known this stuff, at least that would have given me the motivation to continue. So yeah, launch monitors, understanding whether it's club fit to get that optimal launch or technique changes to get that optimal launch. 
I would have done all of that as well. Oh God, I wish I could go back now, but I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying <laughs> where I'm at, to be honest. I really enjoy my golf right now. And Well, that's just like the crux of life. That's like the idea of the whole episode is like, you know, we all wish we could go back with what we know now and many things in life. But yeah, I think the next crop of golfers, you know, that might happen to them, but we have a lot more good information at our disposal. Well, if you're starting golf right now, you've got such an advantage over what we we did. It was literal voodoo when we were learning it. Yeah. That also made it kind of cool too. Like you can make yeah. the opposite argument that like, you know, some people say, well, that lack of knowledge was, you know, the people refer to that as like artistry. So a lot of people refer to the prior generations of ball strikers, you know, Seve, others, like there was more artistry in the game. And I think that is another way of saying like, well, there were a lot more unknowns. Therefore, people had many different methods to play well. Whereas now, if you look at pro golfers, they are more conformed in in terms of like, they know what's optimal with their bodies, ball flight, club fitting. You know, we did discuss this with Frank Nobolo as well. It's like, it, it kind of flattened the playing style, so to speak. And the equipment has led to that too. So yeah, that angers some people. And I understand that, that take. There's definitely some romance to the not knowing part and it was yeah exactly yes yeah i would go to bed as a kid with thoughts of what what is going to get me to the next level and i would literally dream about golf and wake up with a new swing idea and be so excited to get to the range to try <laughs> that out i know there's probably a lot of people still out there like this whereas now as an instructor with what i know there's ro no romance left it's just a case of right here's the problem here's a solution <laughs> it's that simple i think in lots of ways that's nice but in lots of ways it's it's lost the mystique to it yeah i mean that's like i guess that'll be my final thought like well maybe sometimes that's not good i mean for me like i like knowing i like getting better i like being more efficient so i enjoy all this stuff that's obviously what we talk about all the time on this show but yeah there is a segment of golfer who's like well all that knowledge isn't such a good thing too but to each his own i think that's what's wonderful about the game like you can still you know do whatever the heck you, you don't have to take all this knowledge you can still you know play with older clubs whatever it just sucked for someone it, yeah it's it sucks for the player again who wanted to get better and didn't have the right information and that frustrated them and th those are the types of golfers we're obviously gravitating yeah, towards i would have done anything to get better i would have cut off my right arm if it meant i'd shoot three shots lower but <laughs> yeah i i think for the most part most people play this game to score lower and get better I mean, that is the point of the game, right? You can play this game without scoring, but like it's a game and it has a score. And let's face it, like most people like shooting lower scores. They like hitting better shots. It's kind of fulfilling. It's a bit of a drug. It's addicting. And that's what I've always sought out. But yeah, all right, we'll, we'll, end, <laughs> we'll end this show on that philosophical note as, as usual. Yeah, my, my summary of it is expectations. I would have changed it. I would have made it more fun, taking it less serious, just through understanding that, you know, you're not going to hit every shot perfect. Swing-wise, I would have made it more general rather than specific. And then I would, wouldn't worry about textbook as much. Just get, get your swing looking like a golf swing and then from there focus on the impact fundamentals. So that's the other part, more impact focus and understanding. In terms of practice, more differential and random practice. And then in terms of clubs and equipment, I would have got my clubs fit for me. But something we didn't mention, I wouldn't have bought as many different clubs. I was always buying clubs thinking that, oh, this one is going to be the one. 
and it wasn't. You know, the first time I bought that biggest big Bertha and I went from persimmon or I, I bought this cheap titanium thing from a car boot sale or you call them flea markets. And uh, I thought, oh, once I buy that $200 club, I'm going to be hitting the 300 yards. You have to, right? I mean, it's everybody else's. So, and I bought it and I hit it exactly the same. In fact, I sliced it 50 yards and that's just so, so disheartening. God, when we, when we first, when me and my buddies first got our hands on that first great big Bertha titanium one, the Ruger titanium one, I mean, it was like Excalibur had been pulled out of the stone <laughs> or like when that tailor, when that tailor made bubble shaft came out the first, you remember those yeah, ads yeah, yeah. for the bubble shaft? I mean, that is like, I still drool thinking about the bubble shaft. Like the first time <laughs> I saw it, I'm like, this is, oh my God. Like I, that was just the most exciting, like other than watching tiger play, like that stuff was so exciting to me. And, but yeah, I I'd still hit it like crap. I remember, <laughs> I remember the first time I bought a proper set of golf balls, tight list PTS wound or something like that. And I was reading the back of the packets and they said, this one spins. And, you know, they have those little yeah, uh, ratings yeah, the, the, on it. And the, this, the one, lines, yeah, this yeah. one had super spin. And the first time I hit it into a green, I was like, I couldn't wait for it. It touched the green and I was just waiting for it to rip back off the green. And it just, Zip back. It just bounced just forward stayed and stayed there. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> so maybe it's not the equipment. So, yeah, I wouldn't have bought into as much of the equipment hype. I, I don't buy new clubs now. I'm, I'm the complete opposite now where I was as a kid but yeah that's my summary there all right yeah i would say my closing thought would be i guess this is a mini advertisement i i wrote the four like the four foundations of golf like i wrote that book to give it to my former self like i'm like if i, I that, that was the mindset i had it's like everything i've failed at messed up with learn from other players and other coaches like that is the book i would drop on my doorstep as a 12 year old and be like read that and i think you'll be in a better spot so there's my closing statement and my plug for my book because i can't help not plug my book <laughs> so that's it that's our our finishing segment on this theoretical thought exercise whatever the hell this was yeah, it was interesting i enjoyed it yeah if you want to learn more about my thoughts on it, I've got 150 hours of content in Next Level Golf if you're interested in going through that on different topics. If you're not, the strike plan is a shorter, it's like three hours of content dedicated towards strike, which I consider the most important fundamental. And then the accuracy plan helps with face control, path and strategy side to side. John, what's your website and where can people find your book? Just search the four foundations of golf. Practical golf is very close to being relaunched. I'm so excited about it, but not worth talking about just yet. Anyway, we appreciate everyone who always, people on social media who respond to the questions and give us ideas. Thank you. Love the feedback, the support, and we'll see you next time with a new episode.